0: And at this time, our uh, youngest of children can meet their uh, teachers in the back as they go to learn what it means to, to worship, uh, what it means, what it is that we do here during this time, uh, and what it is that we do during the rest of the service, what it means to truly worship God. For the rest of you, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we're continuing our series in Matthew where we declare and cry out, your kingdom come. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Here now, God's word for his church. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for... Jesus Christ, thank you for the Son of the living God, and thank you that his word is living as well. I pray that we would take it to heart. I pray that this would not just be another sermon that we listen to and go on our merry way. I pray that the truths contained in these words would have an effect, a lasting and true effect. I pray for our children as they learn to worship, as they learn who Jesus is, that they would Come to a saving knowledge of Him, Lord, that they would live out the gospel just as much as we endeavor to. and we pray this in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Uh, many of you are in this room are married, right? Um, you remember before you got married? Do you even remember that? remember before you were married when you were thinking about being married and what that means and all that it would entail? you remember? You remember having that thought, oh. Marriage will be great. We'll just we'll just get to snuggle on the couch every day, watch movies, feed each other grapes maybe, right? Oh, it'll be so fun to raise kids together, right? We won't make any of the mistakes our parents made, <laughs> and we'll be on the same page on every issue. You remember having those thoughts, yeah? But just a few months in, you discover there's a wrong way to load the dishwasher. And and you might find that you chew too loudly. And you find out that you have to decide what you're going to eat for dinner every single day. Marriage is great. It really is. Because by God's grace, God makes two sinners able to love one another well. But it's not always great for the reasons that we think it's going to be great. When we said those wedding vows, we meant them sincerely. But in another sense, we had no idea what we were agreeing to. Think about all that's happened since your wedding day. The disciples are kind of like a naive fiancé, right? They're, They're not stupid, but they're also not fully understanding of what it means to follow Christ. Even Peter this morning makes an astounding declaration, but he doesn't quite understand the weight of what he's just said. So this this morning, we're going to look at this wedding. We're going to look at the groom, then the bride, and then the purpose of the union. To put it in other words, we're going to look at the identity of the Christ, the foundation of his church, and then the mission of the kingdom. So first, the identity of the Christ. Uh, If you look at verses 13 and 14, Jesus understands that there are misconceptions out there about him, so he asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Some of them said, well, uh, there's John the Baptist, there's Elijah, there's Jeremiah. Lots of options out there. And before you look at that and go, that's weird. Why would people think Jesus is like these people? Well, uh, in the last verses of the Old Testament, the Old Testament concludes with these verses in Malachi chapter 4. And we see that there would be another Elijah, right? I will send you Elijah the prophet and he will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Does that sound like something Jesus has done? Yeah, pretty similar. Then there's uh, Jeremiah. He was hated for his message. Sound like Jesus? It's not difficult to see why, why some people thought that Jesus might be the second coming of one of these prophets, right? And to most, for most, to even be mentioned in the same breath as some of these prophets would be an honor beyond words. But Jesus hints that even these men aren't quite enough with his next question in verse 15. Verse 15, Jesus asks, but who do you say that I am? These men aren't, I mean, that's great, that's good, it's close, I guess, but it's not quite enough. Who do you say that I am? Peter, the spokesman, the first one to talk, right? You are the Christ, son of the living God. And we would say, hopefully a little more enthusiastically, we would say amen, right? Like a groom saying his wedding vows, we, like Peter, aren't always aware of the full extent of of what is contained in these words, right? Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, but what would Peter do just a few verses later? For those of you who have your Bibles, what would he do? He would rebuke Jesus, right? Jesus would say, I'm going to have to suffer and die. And Peter would say, how dare you say that? Peter had an image of what the Christ is. He had a picture of who Jesus should be. But the real Jesus... Didn't match up to what Peter had in his mind. Peter would later even deny Jesus, right? But let's give credit where credit is due. Peter does understand this Jesus isn't just some other prophet, he's not even first among equals. He's something greater, right? He's something more. No comparison will really do, uh, but imagine someone asked you if you knew who Tom Brady was, and your answer was, he plays football, right? Right, or uh, or if someone asked you who George Washington was, and you said, "Wasn't he in politics?" Right. Saying that Jesus is a prophet is like, well, you're not wrong. Technically, Tom Brady is a football player. George Washington was in politics, I guess. But there's so much more. You, you're not quite capturing. What and who Jesus is. Jesus isn't only a prophet. He is, as Peter confessed, the son of the living God. What does that mean? And what does that not mean? Uh, it means that Jesus is the prophet that all other prophets pointed to. He, he's the one who would deliver the word of God, just like a prophet, but in a different way. He would deliver the word of God in a way that actually allows its hearers to obey something that even the greatest prophets could not do. Jeremiah, Isaiah, John the Baptist, Elijah, they could not force, they could not make it so that the people listening to their message could obey. Jesus can. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus being the Christ means he is king, who reigns in perfect justice and goodness over all creation for all time. Jesus is the one who fulfills all our hopes, all our longings, All our deepest and and truest desires. Because he made us. He knows how we function best. And he is coming to make right everything that has gone wrong. This is what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. The son of the living God. So we confess not only with our words but with our lives. The groom. The identity of the Christ. But how do we come to do that? How do we come to see what others don't? How do we believe what others don't? We look at the bride, the foundation of the church. Uh, There's a lot in these verses. I'll just say that. This is going to be the longest point, so stick with me. I'm saying that so you can be prepared. Stick with me because there's a lot in here, but we have to lay a foundation. In verse 17, Jesus responds to Peter's statement and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. To get the full effect of what's happening here, I've actually retranslated as you can see. Bar Jonah means son of Jonah. And that's not just a detail, it's, it's meant to have you hear that differently. So, so pull up that last slide. Here's, here's what that looks like now. Blessed are you, Simon, whose father is Jonah, because your human father did not reveal this to you, but my father. He's using his own name to show him where he got this revelation. Where did he get this? Is it because he witnessed miracles? No. Is it because he was following Jesus with all of his heart? No. It's because the Father has chosen to reveal who Jesus is. That is the foundation of the church. And so just as Jesus is the Son of God, so Peter... Is a son of God as he confesses Jesus Christ and is united to him. And so we are sons and daughters of the King. This is the foundation of the church. We can't convince others of who Jesus is with, uh, with charm or even convincing arguments or even holy lives. We can't do it. God the Father must reveal who his son is. That's comforting, that's empowering. That that relieves me of the burden of feeling like it's up to me to convince others of the truth that I know. It's encouraging and it's strengthening. But Jesus goes further. Jesus says in verse 18, And I tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Pages and pages and pages of ink have been spilled over this issue. The question being, what is the rock? I won't bore you with the details. I will let you know there are two major options. It's either Peter or what he says. Either Peter himself is the rock or it's what he says. Again, I won't bore you with the details. If you look at the grammar, if you're looking at what the words actually say, it's obvious. It's Peter. It has to be. Here's the issue with that. Here's why people look somewhere else, though. Here's why people are tempted to say, no, it can't be Peter. It has to be what he says. You know Peter, right? You've read about Peter, some of the things he's done and, and said, right? Peter, who in just a few verses would rebuke Jesus for saying that he had to suffer. Peter, who just a few chapters later would say, I didn't know Jesus. Peter who would later be rebuked by Paul for essentially living a double life between the Jews and the Gentiles. This is the rock. This is the foundation of the church. That's a shaky foundation. I must look somewhere else. That can't be the rock. It has to be somewhere else. See, You you see why people go somewhere else? Yeah, that makes sense, right? Until you look at the rest of the verse. Verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock... I will build my church. I, Jesus says, will build my church. I will build my church. That's not an issue anymore. Sure, Peter's a shaky foundation. But I'm looking to the builder. I'm looking to Jesus Christ. Paul himself backs up this reading of these verses. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. You know Ephesians chapter 2 because of the for by grace are you saved through faith and this is not of yourselves verse. Just a few verses later, Paul talks to the church and he says, Remember, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Household of God, church. The church is built on the foundation. Of course it's built on the foundation of Jesus. Of course it is. Nobody here is saying that Jesus is not the foundation of the church. But scripture And Jesus himself is also saying that he has built his foundation of the church on the apostles and the prophets. Paul has no problem saying that the apostles and the prophets were the foundation of the church, but he also goes on to say something else. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone of that household of God in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Yes, the Lord uses the prophets and the apostles. Yes, the Lord uses men and women and even children to build his church today, to expand it. Don't shy away from believing and proclaiming that, but also remember who is the cornerstone, who is the builder. Uh, Whenever I... Whenever I start feeling uh, too big for my britches, as my uh, mother-in-law from Mississippi would say, uh, I remember a, a, an old prayer that, uh, that I read about um, by Francis of Assisi. He's a 12th century monk. And in it, he, uh, he includes these words which have been made into many a song and many a hymn. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. And as I started thinking about that, I started thinking about what we are as this church. We are an instrument. The instrument does not get the glory. The builder does. If I build, if I build a, a treehouse and say, as the foundation of this treehouse, I used hammer and nails. Nobody goes up to the hammer and nails and says, good job, hammer and nails. You really outdid yourself this time. No, you turn to the builder and you say, nice work. The builder gets the glory. Because only the builder can guarantee what Jesus says next. In verse 18, the end of verse 18, Peter is the rock. Jesus is the builder. And he guarantees what he says with these words. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, the gates of death, will not prevail against it. Just as Jesus is the son of the living God, so death, his church, will not prevail against it. Because Jesus isn't talking about a building, right? You remember 1 Peter chapter 2. I, 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 I would be surprised if you didn't know it, right? Peter himself says, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, you church, that's you. You are a living stone and you are being built up as a spiritual house. That's who you are. You are the church. Death will not cause you, the church, to cease. The difficulty with Peter as the foundation is that what would eventually happen to Peter. He would die. What would eventually happen to Paul and Elijah and Moses and Abraham and David? They all died. That's the nature of being human. You die. And so you can't be the foundation if you're eventually going to die. You can't be the solid foundation if you die. This is why Jesus is better according to Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 7 we read these words. The former priests, you remember the priests of the Old Testament, the priests who offered the sacrifices? They were great. God used them. And they were many in number. You know why they were many in number? Because they died. Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. This is why Jesus is better. Because he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently. And as a result of that, he continues Forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives. He always lives to make intercession. Jesus didn't make intercession and then leave you. He always does it. He is continually right now before the Father interceding for you on your behalf. Amen? This is the good news of the gospel. So we proclaim as we just sang, Christ is risen, O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? So we have confidence, brothers and sisters. Knowing who Jesus is and knowing who we are in him, we are fully equipped to carry out our mission. Not our mission, but the mission of the kingdom. So let's look much more briefly now at the church, the mission of the kingdom. In verse 19, Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, if the church is not a physical building, it follows that the keys are not physical keys. Jesus did not go to Home Depot and make copies of the mansion keys, right? He's giving Peter something else besides a physical key. He is giving him authority. Authority and the ability to usher in the kingdom of God. An authority that would later be extended to the church including all of us in this room. In Matthew 18, a few chapters later, right? Jesus says to the church, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The authority to Peter is extended. So yes, we're reading about the authority extended to Peter, but you need to read this with yourself in mind. Now, if when you hear the phrase "Kingdom of Heaven," you think of a place in the sky, then you might imagine Peter uh, you might imagine Peter standing at the gates of heaven, right, deciding who gets in and who's out. Right? However, if you keep in mind the picture that Scripture paints of what the kingdom of heaven entails, we realize it's something a little closer to home. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is wherever God is king. It's like in, uh, in one of the stories of, of the Norse uh, god, lowercase g, Thor. You've heard of Thor, probably. Uh, when his sister reappears after a long, long absence, he realizes how, how powerful she is. She defeats an entire army of his men by herself. His hammer which is supposed to be indestructible, she crushes with one hand. And so he starts fretting. He starts talking to his father. Father, what am I going to do? I, I can't defeat her. So his father gives him some advice, and, and then he says, well, it doesn't matter. It's too late anyways. She's already taken Asgard, their home. And his father responds, in my opinion, brilliantly in a way that should resemble the way that we think about the kingdom of God. He says this, Asgard is not a place, never was. Asgard is where our people stand. Asgard is not a place, it never was. Asgard is where our people stand. And in the stories, they go on to make somewhere else the new Asgard. And so I wonder if that's how we think about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It's not a place up there. It's wherever God is king. So we have the keys of the kingdom to open up the kingdom, to spread it, to expand the reign of Jesus and the beauty of heaven to here on earth. Remember what we learned in Matthew chapter 12, which equips you for exactly what Jesus is talking about here. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, Jesus was accused of casting out demons because uh, he was working for Satan. You remember? Remember? And here was was his response. Uh, Can you go back one? Sorry. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, right? The kingdom of God is here. How do you know that? Well, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he may plunder his house. How can you invade Satan's house? How can you invade earth and cast out demons if he's not first bound? Christian, do you you hear what's happening here? The kingdom of God is in this era where Satan is bound. Satan has no power over you. The gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the gates of death will not prevail against the church. And so that allows you to go forth in your mission to bring about the kingdom of God with full confidence, knowing that Satan is bound. So we have to ask ourselves, what does, that, what does that look like? What does it look like to bring about the kingdom of God? Well, it does not look like it being all up to you. The almighty God of the universe, the son of the living God, does not need Randy Lozano to bring about his church. You can say amen to that. It's, I won't be offended. Right? It does not mean that every conversation we have or everything we do has to be about the Bible or salvation. As the famous quote goes, uh, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. Everything we do. If Jesus is king, what is he king over? Everything. He is king over shoemaking. He is king over accounting and parenting and eating and everything we say or do. So ushering in the kingdom includes, includes explicitly preaching the gospel. Amen. Hallelujah. But it also includes being a good student, going to school, learning the things that our teachers tell us, being respectful of the teachers, Loving the students around us as we would want to be loved. You are ushering in the kingdom when you do that, students. Being part of the kingdom means living every aspect of our lives with Jesus as king. So when you get dressed, your own vanity is not king. Jesus is. When you're deciding what to eat, your own stomach and your own desires are not king. Jesus is. When you talk to others, your own desires to elevate yourself and tear down others is not king. Jesus is. When you decide where your money goes, you are not king. Your own wants are not king. Jesus is. Hear now the good news of the gospel, Christian. Jesus is a good king. And so, these aren't things that we reluctantly give up. This is cheerful submission to a God who loves you more than you can even understand. And so, the good news of the gospel is that all these things Jesus Himself equips you to do. In Him, we find full satisfaction so that I don't have to try to find my satisfaction in money or in food or in the approval of others. In Jesus Christ, all my deepest and truest desires are met. When you've eaten a full meal, and I mean like your belly button's poking out a little bit, are are, are you looking for dessert? No, you're good. You're good. You're fully satisfied. You're not looking anywhere else. This is, this is how Jesus equips you. This is how Jesus enables you to carry out the mission of his church. So take ownership of it, Christian. Jesus has given you the high dignity the high dignity of equipping you and calling you to do the work of his kingdom. You have a mission. Embrace the purpose for which you were created. Love those who are hard to love. Give generously until it hurts. Strive to live every aspect of your life in a way that pleases God. And do all of this knowing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the ultimate builder of the church. And because of him the church and her mission, your mission will never fail. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for for this mission. Thank you for the dignity you have given us. Thank you for loving us and equipping us to do the work for which you have called us. Thank you for not leaving us on our own Thank you that it is so comforting, that you are the builder, you are the Christ, you are the husband of the church. Thank you for loving us so much. May we never doubt how much you love us, especially as we come to this table. We pray this in the name of Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen.